0: Hello everybody and thank you for joining us on this episode of Activist Lawyer. I'm here in the Granite podcast studio with Jack. Hello everybody. Um, And today we are delighted to be joined by Professor Louise Crawley. Hi, Louise. Hi, Sarah. Great to be on. You're joining us from the School of Law at University College, Cork, Ireland. So not in the studio today, but um, we are so grateful to have you take time out of your busy schedule to join us here. Um, So, Louise, just before we get stuck into some of the questions that we're going to cover today, Like we ask all of our guests, I suppose, what um, in terms of your legal journey, what inspired you to become a lawyer and to specialise in this area of law, and I suppose to opt for a career in academia. If you could take us through your journey, that would be fantastic.
1: Sure, yeah, and thanks, Sarah, for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. Um, How did I get to where I am? Well, I suppose I'm in UCC now, 21 years, Um, but I did begin life as a family law practitioner, so. Uh, I went to this college and studied law. And in my master's, I, the timing was very interesting. So I was doing my master's in law in 1996, 1997, mm-hmm. at the time of the divorce referendum in Ireland and the introduction of the legal remedy of divorce at that time. So for my mm-hmm. dissertation, I examined the financial uh, provision made for uh, parties and um, having and um, applying for a divorce under Irish law and. The timing was just um, perfect. So I was the first person to publish in the area. And for my dissertation, I produced four academic articles and contributed two books. So I was getting real value for that work. And I think at that time, I really enjoyed studying. I was always a very good student and really enjoyed studying law. When I studied family law and, and the different aspects of family law at undergrad and, again, at master's level, I was really drawn to the area and then had the opportunity to explore it in more depth in a really timely way with my master's. So... I I definitely had um, a grow for academia Mm -hmm. at that time, so with publications, whilst I was training to become a a solicitor, uh, was something that really excited me to be able to engage in what was then really contemporary public debate about divorce being introduced to Ireland, which was you know such um, a landmark moment for uh, women in Ireland yeah. as well as more broadly. Recognising the importance of the law being utilised to support people, so not to see laws mm-hmm. that was you know necessarily punitive or anything like that, but rather as a tool to support an evolving society to recognising the changing needs of Irish families. You know the move away from yeah. the strict uh, ideology of the Catholic church and recognizing autonomy so it was a really exciting time to be able to study that and to have the opportunity to to sh- kind of share my thoughts through academic publications and so whilst i was training to qualify and i was working in the area of family law when i was uh, training and also the brief period that i was in the office after qualifying so i i worked as a solicitor fully qualified solicitor for about six months uh, but during that time a one-year post came up in, in ucc as a lecturer and i got the post and I don't mind telling you that it was, um, you know, it wasn't a difficult decision. I was delighted with it. Yeah, sure. It was a significant pay cut. It also was just a one-year contract, having trained for three years, you know, in Blackhall Place. Sure. But there was never a doubt in my mind that that's where I wanted to use my knowledge. And I suppose I, I, I had an awakening then as to the capacity to influence not only law reform, but also public debate as an academic. Um, and so that's kind of where the journey began in academia. And I've never looked back. I did miss the interaction with clients at the beginning, mm-hmm. but very quickly found that it just is enriching uh, engaging with students um, and students from so many different backgrounds, different ages, you know, the perception that, oh, you're meeting all kind of 18-year-olds just out of school. But in, in mm-hmm. UCC, certainly law led the way um, with mature students. So that's one of the areas I got very heavily involved in uh, very quickly in UCC and developed links with local um, uh, PLCs, so students who went to... Uh, PLCs rather than university as a a different route to third level. So I connected, I developed links locally, which are now national links to the CAO where students who do well um, on those courses can have a a pathway into third level um, and particularly into UCC. So really proud of being able to do that. So um, working in academia not only allows me to to pursue my academic research in the area of family law, domestic violence, you know, the regulation of families in an ever-changing Ireland, but also, as, as we we'll come to you, has given me a platform to to develop education-based initiatives mm-hmm. to address these in a really practical level with our staff and students and, and now beyond. And then I suppose the third element is my ability to um, in develop programmes and initiatives in the university, such as those connections with Uh, PLCs um, and colleges as well as other kind of civic and community based engagements that I can use my platform as an academic to to, to pursue those so really I have to say I have a a wonderful job I'm really lucky UCC gives me wonderful um, space and opportunity to use my platform to really try and affect change you know for the good not just at a, at a university level but also societally and then you know because of the times we're living in mm-hmm. there is such an appetite for information and education and that is the you know that is the foundation of everything mm-hmm. that I do which is using my 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 position within education to both develop programs and also then to reach out to people and to to uh, support people on their own journeys of, of learning and change yeah
0: well, as you say, Louise, you started your career and your, your legal journey, I suppose, at a very exciting time. And just I'm interested mm. in that period of, I suppose, constitutional history and uh, and the development of family law in Ireland and in general, citizens' rights stemming from that, that period. So... As we know, Ireland is seeing, you know, significant changes in recent times. Um, you know, we have same-sex marriage, made headlines around the world leading up to the referendum around repealing the Eighth Amendment. So you've published widely in many aspects of family law. Just in, in general, the I mean, answer is probably yes to this, but just if you could take us through it, I mean, there must be a real noticeable shift in the development of family law and attached or associated rights since you started out in Mm. your career? Or Mm. is Ireland still seen as a slow burner, you know, when it comes to matters like divorce, for example? I know we have it there, but, you know, can we go further? Are we up to speed with other European countries, for example?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing I would say to that is that we are very slow. We, We respond slowly. We, you know, we don't generally lead out on these areas, and I mean, one. Part, I mean, so, but and, and yet, we have made such strides in the last twenty years. So, I always talk to my students, particularly my undergrad students, about when I was a student in the early nineties and how the family law that I'm teaching now is a completely different world to what I would have studied, and even the environment within which I I would have lived. Um, and socialised and studied is a completely different environment. It's a different Ireland and a much better Ireland and a much more diverse and and, uh, welcoming and inclusive Ireland. Much more respectful Ireland in terms of individual rights um, and respecting difference. And I think that's a really key thing here. So certainly um, my notes change every year in family law, which is a wonderful thing. It means we don't stand still anymore Mm -hmm. in family law. Um, but we were certainly behind the curve in terms of supporting people who found themselves in the most difficult situations, and yet the law very often was quite Mm -hmm. discriminatory in terms of who it might protect and who it wouldn't protect, you know, in the context of domestic violence, the fact that up until 1996 you could only seek court support for domestic violence orders if you were married Mm -hmm. so the notion that you were in an intimate relationship which may cause vulnerability may give rise to abuse, that you couldn't get state protection if you were cohabiting but not married, you know, this notion of a deserving applicant Uh, and for me that that's a very striking position for Ireland to have taken for so long, and uh, thankfully now, you know, with the Domestic Violence Act 2018, we see the recognition of all people who could be vulnerable and the state's obligation. And that's the thing: the state has awoken to its obligation to support all individuals in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Less progressive would be our concept of a family. Um, Article 41 of the Constitution in the 1937 version identified the family, you know, as a fundamental political society with inalienable and imprescriptible rights, you know, really elevating the family, recognising it as fundamental to social well-being and Mm -hmm. to to individual good coming together as a collective. But unfortunately, Article 41.3, references the fact that um, this fundamental unit group of society is based on marriage. Yeah. And so as a result, the courts have repeatedly focused on this quite clear statement. I don't know that they could have interpreted it in any other way, and certainly didn't choose to. Um, and as a result, anyone who isn't part of a married family is simply not regarded yeah. as um, associated with constitutional protection. And there's been all sorts of consequences, the ones that continue with us today. The you know the plight of the unmarried father who mm-hmm. has no legal standing the moment the child is born on, on, on up until 2015. Now the um, unmarried father who has cohabited with the mother of the child. Yeah. 12 months, including three months post the birth of the child, can assert automatic legal guardianship. But even that in itself can be a, he said, she said, mm-hmm. difficult one to prove. You know, there is such a, the, the, the suggestion that a married father is a much better positioned father than an unmarried father mm-hmm. simply has no grounding in any sense. And yeah. even if you look at the 1964 Act, a father is defined as a man who is married to the mother of the child. Yeah. You know, this notion that the the, the, the The suitability of your relationship with the other adult defines your status as a parent. You know, and if you try to think about that rationally, it just doesn't make any sense. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we have, and similarly with, um, you know, historically, uh, same-sex couples, Mm one-parent families, all very much discriminated against. So we have absolutely made inroads, and we should applaud those inroads. Interestingly, I think it's really worth noting that the biggest steps that we've taken in recent years have all been led by the, by the people. Yeah. So they have been driven through, you know, a, a, in my opinion, a lack of sufficient political appetite yeah. or bravery, perhaps, to address these really challenging issues. I mean, Repeal the Eight has been on, on the radar for 20 years, Absolutely. but, you know, it was yeah. sidestepped yeah. repeatedly, yeah. and yeah. it was only with the will of the people giving rise to the Citizens Assembly giving rise to the real push, you know, the knocking on yeah. the doors, the people power that made that happen. It's the same with marriage it's equality. With, the yeah. story, yeah. No, yeah, and so it's just the story, and for me, it's the stories of people on the ground Mm -hmm. that sway the vote. It's the realizing the lived reality of individuals, and the way in which the law can so cruelly, cruelly deprive people of their rights or discriminate against people based on, you know. Longstanding traditional ideology that simply, you know, in many cases doesn't have a place in our anymore. And I, I absolutely respect, you know, individual choice, religious choice, you know, and I recognise if there's a majority, but that majority just doesn't give rise to then, you know, equivalent laws applying to everybody. That is simply wrong, you know. And so, and so, you know. It's all about choice, allowing opportunity and then let people make their own decisions. But, you know, applying that blanket ban or blanket position on everybody based on, on you know ideology from nineteen thirty seven is simply unacceptable. And mm-hmm. I'm so proud of Ireland and the people of Ireland to have pushed for this and pushed through the political resistance
0: mm-hmm. to make
1: it happen. And long may people feel that they have a voice. That it will be heard,
0: but you're right. I mean, even behind Article 41.2, I think it is uh, th- th- even the wording of that still shocks people to this day. That it, w- yes. you know, it's so belonging to its time and so archaic. But again, it's mm. the people behind that, and there's so many recommendations for change come out of that, and people are saying, well, it's just wording; it belongs to a different time. But no, I mean, it, you know, it, to make changes that really affect people in Ireland will call for that to be removed. What's the status with that now, Louise, in terms of, I, I think, a recommendation, a few recommendations in a report come out of the um, People's, right. the Citizens' Referendum and that. Would that be a possibility that that could be held next year to amend so, or remove that? Yeah,
1: so they, they, there was, in, in July of this year, the Citizens' Assembly uh, produced a report and they strongly recommended the reform of Article 41, firstly to recognise that it shouldn't be simply the family-based on marriage, that in light of Irish society, the multiple family formations, that it no longer is mm-hmm. appropriate to um to have this hierarchy of families, where only constitutional status can apply to my families. in relation to Article Forty One Point Two and the position of the woman in the home, and um, I think there was all but a hundred percent unanimous support for that to be addressed. Now, there, the, the issue and the issue that we faced in 2019 when we looked at having the referendum which was eventually dropped on this issue is how do we reword it? And that's the real challenge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is an argument for deleting it entirely, that it has no place anymore. You know, I, I, I would feel that is perhaps um, very appropriate on one level. I mean, it's so gender based and so inappropriate and you know, acknowledging the woman's duties in the home, quote unquote, and, you know, and, they, they, and, and, and yet it's so meaningless. Because it talks about a woman should not by economic necessity be forced to work outside the home Mm -hmm. to the neglect of her duties. And yes, what does a woman receive if she is working in the home to support that decision? So Mm -hmm. for me, it's words and very little else because women have tried to rely upon it historically in the courts and it has not been um, recognised as giving them a right that is justiciable. So, you know, it is quite weak as regards its substance. Mm -hmm. However, at the same time, I think that the incredible contribution that people, and I say that gender neutral specifically, that people make in the home, they, the contribution they make to, whether they're married or unmarried, by the way, the contribution that they make, whether it's cares for elderly people, for young people, for people with disabilities, um, that that is a hugely important fabric of Irish society. Mm-hmm. And there there is a need for that not to be ignored. And there is something symbolic about recognizing in the constitution, but a big caveat, I think we need to be very careful what we use the constitution for. And if you have words in the constitution, they have to have meaning and they have to be intended. Sure. So I don't know that maintaining in the constitution is necessary for people to be recognized uh, symbolically or otherwise or mm-hmm. financially uh, as regards what they do for Irish people individually and as a collective society, I, I struggle with putting it in the constitution as you know being thought to be the only way or the the, the most appropriate way to recognise that. I don't think that's necessary, and I don't think it should necessarily be maintained in the constitution simply because that's where it began. But if it is maintained in the constitution, it needs to be gender neutral it needs to recognise that it's more than a mother caring for her child. But equally, then we need to be very cautious that if we're recognising the fact of carers or the rights of carers we need to make sure that we're not creating a new hierarchy where the rights of carers may, in some instances, supersede the rights of those for, who are being cared. So just in certain circumstances, that might be very dangerous. So the wording is so important. Yeah. And I understand that's why ultimately that part of the referendum in 2019 was dropped because of the at the time they simply couldn't come up with the best new version. So that's an ongoing conversation. I'm not quite sure what that will look like, but certainly as regards Article 41 and the limited reference to the family yeah. we need to move towards the articulation of the European Convention the Human Rights approach which recognises the, the function of the of the, the relationship in question rather than the form. Mm-hmm. Because if we're only looking at the form, so you walk up an aisle and you get married, so suddenly you are presumed to be the superior family formation with all of the associated rights. And for me, that doesn't, that one doesn't follow the other. And, mm-hmm. and then the negative implication of that where those who don't walk up the aisle are a less than family Equally, that's just insulting. So, how we how we how we resolve that? I don't have all the answers, but what we're doing right now isn't working, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Absolutely. And stemming on for that, I suppose we're looking at how the law changes constitutionally and legislatively. But in terms of societal change and attitude mm. in Ireland, how is that reflected, in your opinion, or whether, I don't know whether your research really looks into that? In terms of, for example, you know, domestic violence within the home, whether it's between a married mm. couple or not you know, there is a sense that people always, you know, looked at it as a a private matter, something not to intervene. Mm. And how do you think, for example, domestic violence, um, people are protected? Can the law do more in Ireland? Is this something that still needs further work as we kind of witness change, Mm. um, historical change when it comes to family law and associated rights?
1: Yeah, so I think that traditionally the law, along with society and culture in Ireland, have kept uh, intimate partner abuse, particularly in the home, very private. Um, and, you know, there is is there there is a school of thought that would say, oh, well, that's because we respect the privacy and the autonomy of the family, and it's yes. not involved. But we're fooling no one when we say things like that. And I think that so long as you keep the veil over the, 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 the activities of people within the home, you are ultimately protecting perpetrators and you are giving them the opportunity to continue to perpetrate and escalate their behaviour and failing to protect the most vulnerable. And if the law is to serve any purpose in society, it has to begin with mm-hmm. protecting the most vulnerable in our mm-hmm. society, whether they're children, whether they're abused partners, wh- whoever they may be. So as far as I'm concerned, for change to happen, we need well, in Ireland, we typically lead with uh, eventually admitting to a, a problem or a, a situation that needs to be addressed, followed by public debate, followed by the law. So it takes a while. It's fact, like we always have to warm up to it. We need to challenge the, the too often absolutely entrenched views, you know, such as, oh, that's none of our business, they're a married family, or, you know, that they're a mar- so this, that, or the other. And, and then eventually we might get to legal change. And and, 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 and and when we do get to legal change, I suppose the one benefit of of the the slower nature of Irish evolution of law is that we can reflect on the experiences of other jurisdictions. And when we do that, we can do that very well because we learn from what they've done and what has worked for them. And we could do that a bit more. We could look perhaps further afield and be a bit more creative about our legislative responses. You know, I suppose there is caution typically in Irish remedies being developed. But I think that we have more of an appetite now for more creative approaches now that we've seen the way in which um, law can impact. So I was yeah. talking about law as a social tool. And, and, and law can be used as a kind sort of a preemptive social tool that it can encourage behavioral change. Mm. But I think at the moment in Ireland, it's gauge the way in which we've evolved. Um, um, and for domestic violence, for example, so we have now developed our laws with the 2018 Act. But to be honest, that was very much pushed by the Istanbul Convention and our yes. obligations under the Istanbul Convention. And I welcome that because I don't know that we would have been so progressive um, had we been left to our own devices mm-hmm. um, and with that has come a uh, destigmatization of uh, domestic and intimate partner abuse in other words that people are now more likely to come forward and they are welcomed and supported more than they were i'm not saying they're is welcome and supported but there is greater visibility of the issue there's greater recognition of the prevalence of it and also yeah. from my point of view from my work a realization that just because you're not directly involved it doesn't mean that you don't have a role to play and as I always say to my students if you see something or you're aware of some some behaviour and you've nothing to do with it you're not either the Mm -hmm. victim or the perpetrator but you see it and you do nothing about it well as far as I'm concerned you're part of the problem problem, and I think it's you are and there's a growing recognition that we all have a role to play and really in terms of culture for me one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to cultivate that sense of personal responsibility for the well-being of others and our capacity to influence what is perceived to be acceptable behaviour. Yeah. So we shouldn't just follow what seems to be acceptable, actually demand a certain level of respect, yeah. demand a certain type of behaviour, and, you know, say zero tolerance of all forms of abuse. And yeah. that has to come from the ground up. That mm-hmm. has to be a shared a shared desire and a shared demand. Because until we do that, so much unacceptable behaviour would be regarded simply as a social norm and would be almost... Become part of normal existence in exactly. you know in, in terms of perception, and yeah. as, so long as we stay silent, that will just that creep will continue. So the law certainly brings the headlines and brings our attention to it, but it's about actually those conversations that people have you know, in their own circles, with their peers, with their families, and because you never know who you're talking to, you never know who's in the circle of people in your room. I mean, if there's 10 students in front of me, I'm pretty sure that at least one of them is either currently or has been in in an abusive relationship. And perhaps one perpetrator in the room, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe you need a bit more for one perpetrator to be in every room, but um, certainly this is so prevalent that, you know, if you're having these conversations, you don't know how people are hearing them, what experiences they have or are currently having. And so, I think that if we can have more of these conversations that are educated and informed and people realise the role that they have to play, um, that is huge. That's as important, if not more important, than the legal structures being in place.
0: Yeah, really interesting and that really leads us nicely into our next section you spoke about your um, work giving you a platform to make change and you have made ma- monumental strides in terms of the next the next issue that we're going to talk about and um, really Louise I got to know you through addressing your work on sexual violence and harassment particularly at third level education when I worked um, a few years back with the National Women's Council of Ireland you know that the project was uh, the It Stops Now project where we worked with students and staff throughout the the island of ireland um, however you in use in university college cork and your colleagues work towards achieving a zero tolerance approach against sexual violence not only on your campus but by creating i suppose a blueprint that could be used widely to address the issue the bystander And you, you've spoken a little bit about it there in a general sense in terms of ab- all levels of abuse but can you tell us more about the bystander intervention program in ucc and what you've been working on and how this has come about for our listeners
1: Sure, Sarah. So this um, program, uh, its genesis began in about 2016 and credit to my colleague Rachel Fenton um, in the UK who developed the intervention initiative which was funded by Public Health England and you spoke about a, a blueprint or a toolkit. Rachel developed a toolkit for third level institutions in 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 the UK. So I met with Rachel back in 2016. I was really interested, interested in developing something similar in the Irish context. So Rachel came to UCC and we had um, we had an open session and then we also had sort of a workshop about what we could do and she's incredibly generous and said, you know, you can use this and create your own version of it. So mm-hmm. we did modify it quite a bit and we had two years of a pilot with um, first law students in 2016 and then in 2017 with first year law students, first year nursing and midwifery and then undergrad students from the Applied School of Applied Psychology. And the program in essence is, uh, it, to put it simply, it does two things. So it educates the participants on you know all the relevant areas. so um educates them about what it is to be a pro-social bystander mm-hmm. and the four stages of intervention um, which is you know um, you see something, second you recognize it as problematic. Thirdly, you have a sense of uh, responsibility to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And fourthly, then you have the skills to make an effective intervention. So we talk them through that whole process. We reflect on intervention inhibition. So what might prevent you from making an intervention? And there's, you know, a lot of theory that underlies that. But we we share that with students and then talk to them about their own experience of times when they may have walked by or chosen not Mm -hmm. to intervene, you know, and, and working through that. And then we also do a deep dive into, you know, all of the, the ways in which sexual harassment and violence can manifest and that's really important because whilst obviously rape and aggravated sexual assaults and sexual assaults are horrific and life-changing experiences yeah. for you know victims of such incidents it's really important that we speak to the whole spectrum of behavior because my fear would be that so so many people in the, the, the data tells us you know experience sexual hostility on a regular basis but more at the end of you know lewd comments or leering or groping or sure. you know unwanted images to their phone And my fear is that if we if we focus exclusively on, you know, the more horrific incidents of sexual assault, that so many people will think, oh, this is nothing to do with me. But actually, I'm strongly of the view that it has to do with everybody. And that, oh, unfortunately, we know the majority of our students at the very start of third level are experiencing sexual hostility. So whether they're the victim or they're the perpetrator or perhaps both, are indeed the witness that we need um, all participants to realise the breadth of behaviour that we're talking about, and also that none of it is is acceptable, and all of it is is traumatic. So mm. we we work through that, and then we talk about the law. We talk about consent, and obviously, all the understanding consent and mm-hmm. and how to communicate it, and how to recognise it, and, and all of the conversations around that. And then we can you know talk about toxic relationships, so students can understand what that looks like, whether it's them, whether it's somebody else. And then moving towards that that idea of cultivating personal responsibility as well as collective responsibility across campus. This is your campus; you're entitled to a respectful experience, with are with your colleagues. Social norms again, the students to realise the dangers of not speaking up and how social norms can change if we're silent and, and your know, unacceptable behaviour can creep in and normalised. And then we move towards the second part, which is empowering. So working with the students on all the different ways uh, an intervention can take place. And something that's really interesting in that piece is almost all students say when they finish the training, oh, God, I always thought, you know, I had to speak in and Mm. be dramatic and, you know, and and rescue somebody if I make an intervention. And they come to realize that interventions can... Like so many different things that can be direct or indirect, verbal or non-verbal. They can be simply moving somebody from a situation, distracting somebody and, you know, stopping somebody and the street and, and saying, you know, can direct me to wherever yeah. you, know, cha- you know, breaking into a, what looks like a troublesome situation and just distracting them. You know, that it can happen in so many ways, not laughing at a joke. And also that a, a, an intervention supporting somebody if they disclose an incident to you. That sure. the roles that we can all play to make society safer, you know, in a very mm-hmm. proactive way, but also to be able to support people in stand in solidarity and to know how to say it and what to say and how to direct them to the right services. You know, that these are all roles that we can all play if we simply can recognise unacceptable behaviour, we can learn mm-hmm. how to respond, uh, whether it's a direct intervention, or a supporting piece, and really underlying all of that is about cultural change. Yeah. It's about everybody recognising their role, and, and if we all step up together, well, suddenly the, those who are perpetrating become the outliers. Yes. So they go from being the, the unchallenged perpetrators, the uh, behaviour is almost normalised, to being the ones who are the outliers. They're the behaviour that we're all talking about. Yeah. And who wants to be in that position? So unless they're very intense perpetrators, the people in the middle, the people who are going along for the cracking and virtual commas, who think that this is all okay, just banter or whatever they might call it, they'll suddenly realise that that's not, their, that's not the place in history that they want to be in. They actually don't want to be part of that and they will come over and recognise that actually speaking up and being brave about it is a much better place to be. And we see that and we hear it in the students' responses, we see it in our focus groups and in the feedback that we get back from students and they feel so empowered. Yeah. And so I would, I would say grateful to have the opportunity to learn so much and then to see how they themselves can make a difference and it is empowering and really powerful to watch their responses when they come through the training
0: Yeah you can really see the difference that it makes and I mean it's so prevalent it's just I, I mean when I was in college this just didn't, didn't mm-hmm. exist this level of training you were really interested mm-hmm. in finding out more about it, Jack a student yeah. yourself <laughs> Yeah
1: no, as a student myself so Louise obviously sexual harassment and sexual viol- violence is a difficult topic to talk about for, ma- for many people so how have you mm-hmm. kept students engaged do you work with student societies? Do you uh, take in students that are just interested in the area or is it important for you to bring everybody within the university campus on board? Yeah so I mean in my ideal world nobody would get into UCC until they had started the training because for me it really asserts our position as a university and as a campus that you know a, a basic ground rule is respect for everyone and understanding what unacceptable behavior looks like but also being empowered to know that you can recognize it and that you can make a difference. And I think that um, if everybody takes the training, it gives rise to conversations right across the board, and that's shared ownership of the capacity for change. But I suppose to answer your question directly, Jack, including students is a bit of a challenge. So, you know, we always have the students who are interested, want to learn more, see sign up immediately. Um, so we do now have compulsory training for first years, which is a shorter sort of introductory guide to bystanders. So all of those key messages that I mentioned are included in that, and that's very so it's a recorded piece and it's very uh, student led. So I had students involved, completed the training, and um, sharing their experience, sharing their learning, as well as you know, some narrative for me. But as regards engaging with students, so this is you know, a big part of our work. And in the last 18 to 24 months, we have really um, embraced the multiple ways to engage students. So obviously, every student and staff member can sign up to it now because it's delivered predominantly online, so they two hours, about two hours of. And training online or modules. It's self-directed. There is lovely engagement through it, and um, through the discussion boards and Padlet and also quizzes. But um, then they have a final workshop in person where they reflect with others who've completed the training um, on their learning. And, and that's a really valuable piece where they're with like-minded people and yeah. they get this sense of, you know, this is a collective endeavour. But what we've done now more recently is we're working in a couple of different ways. So it's embedded in a number of undergraduate and postgraduate programmes. So just last week I gave two hours to our seminar to our women NA women's studies uh, students on gender violence at tomorrow and they will have the in-person workshop having done the training over the last week and um, in, in anticipation of the workshop tomorrow. So we've done that now in a number of schools and that's really valuable and that is really buying from the school or the unit at a, at a local level where they want their school to be informed and for their culture to be to be changed uh, with the use of bystander. And then other things we do, so the students you UCC, they all take the training automatically when they become officers of the union, and then they become wonderful ambassadors for us. And then we are developing um, a, a new project whereby we will have consent for every club and society. So we're running a pilot this year. And the idea then is that we would deliver training, and we've started already delivering training to individual clubs and societies. So when you get them all together, what you're doing is that they're all buying into it. And that's a yeah. wonderful you know, um, way of getting into it. And also we're working with uh, UCC Sports. So pre-COVID, we had a great plan that we're just waiting on a bit of normality. But my vision for this is, say, for example, we get maybe the men's hockey team and the women's hockey teams together. So in my head, I see 100 hockey players um, um, of mixed gender in in a large hall. And I will deliver, I suppose, a truncated version, maybe an hour long of the key learning. And then the second hour would be breaking them into groups of 10 where we give them scenarios that are suited to their lived experience as hockey players and students within the university fictional but, you know, pretty much premised on their yeah. their experiences and we'd work with them in developing them and then leave it to them in groups to consider what was wrong in this scenario and then how one might respond. Mm-hmm. And it, that's the, a learning lesson in itself to respond to that task. But what we're doing is that I'm not telling them what to do or what to say, but they're discussing it with each other. Yeah. So straight away we'll have peer-led learning within the context, looking at it from the different gendered perspectives and speaking to their experiences. And I know from the pilot, which we did in person for two years, but some of the key learning is when students listen to each other and realise what it's like to be someone else. So I particularly remember in 2016 with the first-year law students, I remember distinctly the male students in the class, you know, uh, their jaws dropped, when they heard what it was like to be a 19-year-old female law student going out on a Saturday night, mm-hmm. trying to get home, and all of the issues that they faced. And they literally, it wasn't what they didn't want to know, they just didn't know, they weren't mm-hmm. aware. And that awareness is so valuable because you open your eyes and suddenly you see all the ways in which actually you could support and affect and a safer place. Even if it's not just for you, but it's for others. And for me, that willingness and desire on, for those male students at that time to want, desperate to learn, and to stand with their female colleagues and then on a Saturday night, be aware and be able yeah. to step in, you know, in quite a discreet way right next to it, but if they didn't know to see it, how could they ever make the intervention? So with the clubs and the sporting groups, what we want to do is give them the scenarios that allows the conversations to start, they'll have the learning from me, and then apply it. And then I think that if they find themselves in a changing room or in a pub or at a and they're going on the bus, they all have this knowledge now. And yeah. even if you do it that way, because I think part of the question, Jack, speaks to the challenge of getting those who need it most, you know, those who need the training most will be the last to sign up in a volunteer system, yeah. most likely. And so how do you get them to hear it? So I think we can do it through a school basis, or through a club or society or a sports group basis they will be in the room and they will hear it and the joy of bystander and i always say this the joy of bystander intervention is that you are speaking to everybody in their capacity as a bystander so i'm not looking at you jack thinking i've heard jack you know can cause a lot of trouble so i'm speaking to him as a perpetrator or or someone as a survivor victim rather we're speaking to the you know the best part of everyone and we know and i've looked at the psychology studies you know that they're you know that everybody Wants to find the hero in themselves, yeah. and so when I speak to everybody about being an, an effective bystander who can make a difference and affect change, that that's how they're hearing it. So even if they might be a perpetrator or a potential perpetrator, you know, you're teaching them this without being in any way stigmatizing them mm-hmm. or accusatory yeah. in any way, and it's a very nuanced but I think very effective way of bringing the education to people without you know even yeah. them or suggesting in any way that that they need this more than somebody else. So yeah. I mean, suppose the last thing I say on that staff is that I would be of the view and my research suggests to me that actually these programs are most effective when they're compulsory so there's a long-standing sort of debate about whether yeah. you know sex education and consent should be compulsory or voluntary and we know that when consent classes were first in, in, in the UK there was a lot of you know, sort kind of social media posting of young men, in particular. You know, with a poster of the You know, this is not what a rapist looks like, and all of that kind yeah. of negative and defensive responses to the training. And so, when we introduced bystander two thousand and sixteen, I managed to make it compulsory for first year law students, such that mm-hmm. even if they were the best law students in the class, they couldn't get into second year if they hadn't completed wow. the training. So yeah. that was a bit radical, but it was the university recognizing that this is actually really valuable, Absolutely. and it was the only way that I could get that value attached to it. So so the students all had to do it. They had no choice. And I was there of a bit of backlash. I didn't get any. And in fact, what, what the, what the, so two things. Our focus groups, they all said, thank you so much for making me do this. Bystander intervention, I didn't even know what that meant, but I knew I had to go. But once I had finished that first hour, and it was six hours, once I finished that first hour, I wanted to learn more. And when we look at the data of attendance, and the majority of law students that year, and believe me, law students have no rules and regulations, and if they only have to attend three and they don't want to attend anymore, <laughs> they won't. But the majority of law students that year attended five out of six, and in the second year, 94% of the next year attended four attend six hours. Oh, so they, the data tells us that it's a bit like, you know, bring the horse to water and he will drink. So if you introduce this and you just make it automatically mandatory, so yeah. there's no questions asked, that has to be done, my research shows that people are so grateful for the opportunity and sometimes they don't know until you present it to them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so my position would strongly be you can absolutely justify making this mandatory. And the impact of the data that I have in terms of the impact and the students um, fill out pre, a pre-workshop pre start questionnaire and then the same one when they've finished it. Yeah. And the data in terms of the impact of the learning is phenomenal as regards their awareness of their ability to make a difference in the first place, and then their ability to make an intervention. You know, it just goes through the roof as regards um, their own sense of their capacity to make an intervention. Um, so by the time the 2020 group had finished, less than 1% felt that they couldn't make an intervention, um, whereas um, it was, you know, in the 30s and um, could, couldn't yeah. make an intervention, and another 30 thought they could only make a limited um, intervention, but we had 99% plus by the time it over 80% yeah. said yes they could definitely and uh 19 uh, said oh they had they could but it might be limited but nonetheless you know 99 said yeah mm-hmm. i can yeah. make an intervention so it really makes a difference a um, impact the training. yeah we've yeah. had
0: a look at those statistics they're astonishing and, all, yeah. yeah and i've seen it in action and you can really see how you know people are really looking at their attitudes norms and it's about changing that culture too but louise do you think it's should start a bit earlier in terms of even the discussion around consent what's the feeling about bringing it in bringing this conversation into secondary level education I've only ever experienced it at third level would that make
1: sense yeah so I mean the very sad thing is that when we do bystander training with first years you know I do every year have students coming to me with stories of how they've been raped or sexually assaulted So we know students are coming to third level already experiencing sexual assault and violence. And Mm -hmm. by definition, then, we know we have students coming to first who are perpetrating the violence. So I have worked with second level schools. So about in 2019, I invited all second level schools in Cork, City and County into UCC. And uh, we had a a reasonable response and we had a workshop. And what resulted from that was nine schools signed up to developing a pilot for second level. And it was delivered over two years. Um, so it was basically the bystander training, but mo- every slide modified, and training the teachers to facilitate in their classroom. So it was delivered generally to T Well students, some particular students, and it was hugely well received. Yeah. The feedback from the students was that for the first time, the the training was relevant to them. The language was appropriate; it reflected what happened in their lives. So really, really powerful. Um, you know, very limited resources. So I don't have a huge amount of data on it, but just yeah. um, recently, I have looked for funding. Um, for a new pilot. So again, I had, well, I had started off with eight schools signing up with the word is getting out. So I've had, um, invitations from schools in Galway, K. Kenny Dublin, who want to come on board to this pilot. My vision is to create six ten minute recordings of six of the key messages in Vice and then develop um, an instruction manual with teachers and uh, as we develop the pilot, whereby they will then for six 40 minute classes deliver those six messages. So the 10 minutes will play and then they will facilitate a workshop with their students, yeah. so we're working on that at the moment, and um, I, I really feel that it is so badly needed at second level. I yeah. know that there are also there's a lot of work being done in court on consent. from my colleague Margaret Noonan, who is a staff in sexual assault harm unit and practitioner in court, is just a phenomenal woman and a phenomenal worker in this area, and she delivers consent classes to schools and across the city. Fantastic. So there's a real appetite for the second there seems level. to be, and, yeah, yeah, and it's so badly needed. I have Managers, myself and they have out there, but, you know I know from talking to them and what they see on their phones and you know, the you know the type of behaviour that they're exposed to that it is badly needed. And yet there's an appetite for it, and I know from the, the pilot that we did do with second level yeah. the teachers come back and they say they, the students really want to talk about this. And so it's about developing programs that give them a safe space and the language to talk yeah, about it, so that they can so leave fun. the classroom. And be able to engage and ask the right questions and call out behaviour that's not acceptable, you know, and feel that they have a right to do so and hopefully eventually almost a sense of obligation to do so too, yeah. insofar as they can and insofar as it's safe for them to do so. I suppose on that too, Sarah, you know, we need to start thinking about how we speak to younger people in primary school about consent Absolutely. and respect in their own space. And I I've, I've spoken at primary school um, level conferences about this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, some of the stories that I heard from principals about the type of behaviour that's happening even at primary level, you know, it really is a wake-up call mm-hmm. for the importance of the of the conversation. And I know people say, we we'll do the conversations people should be having in their homes, but we can't rely on that. And mm-hmm. I feel strongly as an educator that, you know, we are uniquely positioned to develop programs, age appropriate mm-hmm. and to support the delivery of them. And I really feel that that's something that we ought to do. Yeah. And the state needs to support it, too, in terms of funding. Because, you know, every day we don't invest in this properly. Sure. People are being sexually assaulted and harassed. And, you know, we have to make a difference, and education, as far as I'm concerned, is the the start of everything. And if we educate people and they realise, you know, what is going on, what's not acceptable, and what they can do, you know, individually and collectively, I think that would make a huge change. And we see in UCC that it does make a change, so we have the data to show that it works. Um, Equally, the consent workshops are so crucial, you know, and these two programmes are really complementary, and they, they have a role in working together. To ensure that you know that, that interpersonal relationship space is really uh, well understood, as the best, but then also that broader social responsibility, which is so sure. important because that's what speaks to the norms and that's what establishes what's acceptable, and, and through that, then. We recognise consent and we understand it better.
0: Well, I'm sure anyone involved in it would, you know, have their eyes wide open. But as you said, it's absolutely crucial. And I hope going forward that, you know, schools become involved, sign up to any programmes. But as you said, we need funding. Mm. It needs to come from Mm. a national funding strategy. But um, look, that's it's fantastic. I'm so glad that I got to be a part of it a little bit. But I love to hear how it's rolling out and it really has taken legs. So well done to you and all of your colleagues um, in Cork around that. So I suppose do
1: you Yeah, Jack? so um obviously the work that you're doing is incredible. So one question that I had was how do you combine campaigning for this zero this zero culture sorry, zero tolerance culture um on campus for sexual harassment, sexual violence and then how do you combine that with your day-to-day academic work and legal work how do, how do you juggle all of those things <laughs> i could do i could do the lie down there yeah. to <laughs> be honest but, um, i'm just thinking yeah. yeah yeah so it is just um just long hours it's mm-hmm. you know I, I, my work is never done it sounds a bit dramatic but literally my work is never done so obviously it is a whole lot of juggling and it um the days are long, um, but you know, and 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 more and more. I mean, it's wonderful that the, that the issue is becoming so high profile. Um, but the, the result of that is that you know, every other day, and let's like, go last night, I was speaking at a conference at half past seven, and uh, you know, and last Saturday I was speaking at a conference, um, and all on gender-based violence. Mm. And, you know, from all the different perspectives. So my perspective as an academic in this area, my perspective as a, an advocate, campaigner, and my perspective as an educator and someone who creates programs, and then you know, and, and in the political context, yeah. so of labor. I, I don't have any political beliefs, but I've spoken at a Labour conference in the last four weeks, I've spoken at a Green Party, and, and it's really brilliant to have the opportunity and the platform to be raise this at all those different levels, so whether it's schools, whether it's politically, whether it's in terms of advocacy and NGOs, um, working with the student societies and UCC, spreading the message, which, you know, that the message is the same all the time, but there are so many different avenues, so many different people who need to hear it. So it just means that, the work is, is, is kind of relentless, but in a really good way, yeah. because the busier I am, it means the more people I'm reaching. But yeah, I still have my full-time job as a professor of law in the law school, and I led out basically on our successful for the one application, which was for everyone's work, which, you know, was a huge piece of work that I was so glad to be successful on. But, you know, another really important piece of work in terms of gender equality and the intersectionality issues, you know, that, that we face in, in having a fairer... Um, Workplace yeah. um, in the law school in UCC, so that was brilliant. But again, you know, I suppose the appetite for affecting change, and it's almost um, uh, com- you know, it's almost like an addiction of sorts. And that you know, wherever I can see a yeah. gap that I can that I can be heard, uh-huh. you know, you kind of on to it. So um, yeah, occasionally I take a breath, but it's a good time. You know, it is hard going, but the results are just so powerful and and really
0: yeah.
1: you know phenomenally heartwarming that I can that I can see that voice and then of yeah. course empowering other people to be the voice, so you know, we work with students to be bystander ambassadors within the within the UCC as one well of staff colleagues who are bystander ambassadors, and then you know, able to be able to share the bystander training, which we do, classes, you know, to any you We know, have our program, and we I give them training on of facilitators within their own institutions, again, all complimentary yeah. because the essence of this work is as I'm concerned with, the and generosity when I first started this work, is about sharing, so this anyone who takes this training, I will happily give it to them and support them in way it. I say, you know, I'm not the only voice on this, um, and I want other people to stand up and be, you know, bystander ambassadors right across the sector and beyond the third level sector in Ireland, because, as I say, there are so many people who need to hear this and so many sectors that we need to reach that the, the more people who can, you know, um, I suppose be experts in this and yeah. to, to, to share the knowledge, it's really crucial. So yeah, yeah, yeah busy. Busy, busy, busy but, um, is an understatement. <laughs> um, yeah, but when you make enrols, it makes it easier, I
0: guess. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, you can see results. And when you're speaking about your work, it's clear that you're extremely passionate. So the next question kind of almost has been answered. But just in your opinion, Louise, how important is it that we use law? I mean, we've had so many different people on this show, which has been fantastic, and they've all given their own opinions on it. But just with your area of work, how can we really use law as an effective tool for change? And how important is it to you, um, you know, to become engaged and to use activism as a way to create real and lasting change? I mean, you've seen results yourself, and just for any listeners who would like to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you have for them?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it, it, it kind of starts and ends with the law because the law sets the parameters of what's acceptable in society and where the obligations lie as regards, uh, you know, who who's protecting others and the role of the state, and then all of our Obligations to each other within society. So the law has to be informed, and it has to be um, contemporary, and it has to reflect the needs of individuals, but also the needs of society. So you know, the law is crucial in shaping how we act and how we are expected to act. But you know, I really believe that um, good law can only come from the experiences and respond to yeah. the needs. So consultation and engagement with individuals and with society, and obviously, because of the nature of things, with those who who have a voice to share experiences, so whether you research and, and gather the data on lived experiences, but also speak to the need for change and do so in an informed way that you can reflect on the experiences of other jurisdictions and, and the learning from their legal frameworks and structures. And um, But activism, I think, in Ireland has shown to be so powerful, and yeah. um, particularly in a society where change has been challenging, where change can be able to rise to kind of being ostracised or isolated for being a different voice too long in Ireland and so different voices were, were often silenced but i think the will of the people has in turn made our politicians more brave and recognized that actually being the one to speak up can be you know the most important in the end and that you will be supported by the people so activism and vocal activism uh, is so it has become and is, has been seen to be the agent for change yeah. in ireland so i would say to anybody who is studying in this area or has aspirations to work in this area you know be brave and be bold and call out change and would be amazed what your voice will do for change and will embolden others in turn to support you and to become agents for change so yeah i'm i'm all for
0: that brilliant well, look louise that's been Perfect. absolutely fantastic thank you so much for taking time thank to you speak both. To us. we really really appreciate it it's always a pleasure. we look forward to following all of your work and to looking at more at the bystander intervention program and all of your work around that
1: thanks so much thanks sarah and thanks jack thanks louise